Today we're reading from Hosea chapter 2. Last week we heard from Hosea chapter 1 and we heard about Hosea's wife and the unusual names they called their children uh, and Israel's unfaithfulness. So today is from Hosea chapter 2, 2 to 16. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will war her in so she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens, and my new wine when it's ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incest to Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but uh, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. Therefore, I am going to allure her. I will lead her in wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There, I will give her back to her vineyards and will make the valley of uh, Acre a door of hope. There, she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, she will call me her husband. You will no longer call me my master. Well, it's uh, Father's Day today, and um, over the past four or five years, I've uh, given all of my four children away, Um, and um, this is a Father's Day where I have a few grandchildren, so that's kind of exciting. Uh, I think one of the most difficult things to do as a father is to entrust your children, and in my case, I've had three daughters, to hand over the responsibility of being the most significant voice and person in your daughter's life to someone else. And I've spoken with some of you who have done that, 
and had fears that maybe this wasn't the right person and perhaps your experience is that your suspicions were right and you're now dealing with the consequences of broken relationships, single parenting or blended families. And that is the cause of many a sleepless night, of long, dark nights of the soul. And so it's shocking to read that God the Father invites, tells his prophet Hosea to marry a woman of harlotry. I mean, that's just a recipe for a difficult life and for low chances of success. And so we saw last week in chapter 1 that Gomer or Israel has been unfaithful and that this begets, it, it invites judgment, not loved, not my child. Those are the names of the children, but th there's some imagery kind of going on here. It's kind of like, you know, if you fool around and if you get pregnant, it's kind of like, well, what did you expect? You've brought this on yourself. And there's a sense in which the imagery here, the metaphor is that Israel has brought judgment on herself, has brought on herself the status of not being loved, of not being God's child by her unfaithfulness. And yet God tells Hosea in chapter 1, go and love this unfaithful, unlovable woman. And the chapter closed with this, with this hope of God being faithful to his promises. Hence our title for this series, Unfaithful People, Faithful God. And I was thinking, you know, it's kind of like the movie uh, Pretty Woman, where there's, there's, a, there's a woman of ill repute and um, there's something unappealing and unattractive about that, uh, and yet somehow... Uh, Richard Gere isn't the most dignified person and his motives aren't initially entirely honourable, but um, the movie kind of ends in a good place where, you know, they get married and they live happily ever after and Julia Roberts' life is kind of in a better place. And, and if we just kind of had Osea chapter 1, right, where kind of, you know, um, marry this, this uh, prostitute and, and have children and then... Uh, she's going to love you and you're going to love her and you're going to live happily ever after and she'll be redeemed. We could cope with that. That would be kind of like a, a rags to riches nice story, wouldn't it? Except that's not where the book ends. And now we have a father saying to his children, tell this to your mother. Man, how dysfunctional is this? Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her. For she's not my wife, I'm not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Rebuke your mother because she hasn't changed. 
She's gone back to her old ways. There's something base and carnal about the way that she stares out the window, not just into the abyss, but actually across the desert to where she thinks her lovers are and how she yearns and even sweats for them. And so, chapter two is kind of like another movie with Richard Gere and Julia Roberts, right? It's kind of like, well, you can't get married if you keep running away from the altar, and you can't stay married if you keep running away from your husband. And that's what kind of happens, right? So there's this initial gracious, um, merciful moment where a prostitute is married, and, and, and what does she do? She leaves that family, that security, that stability, her children, and goes back to chasing her lovers. I mean, if Pretty Woman ended like that, we would just, our stomachs would churn. But that's the plot of this second chapter. Rebuke your mother. She's not my wife, I'm not her husband. In some sense, uh, Hosea is saying that her running away, her desiring for other lovers, uh, it undoes our marriage. So Goma remains unfaithful or she goes back to her unfaithfulness. And just like there was kind of a cycle in chapter one, we're now going to go through a cycle in chapter two. And God says, rebuke her, otherwise I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. Now, this could sound on the surface like it's being vindictive, right? Well, if you're going to be like that, I'm going to embarrass you. I'm going to take your clothes away from you. But that's not what's happening. Uh, in, in ways that almost uh, reflect the Garden of Eden, where Eve is naked and vulnerable and God clothes her, clothes in uh, ancient Israel are the male's way of providing for and protecting and bringing honour and respect to his wife. And now what Hosea is saying is, well, if you're not living like my wife, if our marriage is in effect null and void, then you lose the right to my clothes. You don't have my protection anymore. You're not choosing to clothe yourself under my banner. Uh, and uh, it's happening now in a desert scene. And there's two bits of imagery happening here. The first is, it's kind of like, well, uh, if you want to chase after something, chase it by all means, but it'll be a desert-like experience for you. You won't find the love that you're searching for. But the desert is also reminiscent because it was in the desert where God first betrothed himself to Israel. He brings Israel out of slavery. She's been unfaithful in slavery, but God is faithful. God is loving. God is gracious. God is kind. Um, and he declares and commits himself to being, I will be your God. 
and you will be my people. And so it, it's, you know, like couples can kind of have a special song. Well, God and Israel have a special place. It's in the desert. That's where their first love was captured. Well, listen to what Gomer says. I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. So if my husband isn't going to protect me, well, it's okay because where do I get the things I need? Where do I get my comforts and my dignity? Uh, I, I get them from my lovers, from the other gods. Uh, and then further on in verse 8, she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So, Gomer's remaining unfaithful. She somehow is enjoying the benefits of uh, Hosea's or God's generosity, his providence, his clothing, his goodness. And then she kind of says, and guess what? I actually get these things from Baal, from the idols. Imagine that you gave someone who's special to you, your, your, your daughter, for instance, um, a beautiful piece of jewellery for a 21st birthday or something. And then you're at a party and somebody says, oh, wow, that, that's a lovely uh, earring necklace. Where'd you get that from? Oh, I bought it for myself. Like, you'd be offended by that, wouldn't you? Or actually, my boyfriend gave it to me and not my father. Or like, th that, would, that would hurt. That's what's happening here. In fact, uh, it, it goes on. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it's ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. Um, so there's obviously the image of uh, faithfulness and protection. But there's a bit of background here that will help you understand what's happening, right? So uh, Gomer is unfaithful. Uh, she is saying, um, my prosperity comes from the gods. God's going to remove that sense of blessing and prosperity and leave her exposed uh, and thirsty and hungry in the desert. Now, you'll remember from chapter 1, all of this is taking place in the valley of Jezreel. And Jezreel, in some sense, means judgment. Uh, but it also is a place of incredible prosperity. If you stand on Mount Arabel, uh, you can look over the Jezreel Valley, right? And it looks something like that. Uh, and and it's, it's incredibly fertile soil. So uh, what does God say to Abraham and to Israel? I'm going to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a breadbasket, this place. And in the context of the Middle East, there's a lot of good food that's produced here. And Assyria or the Syrians, live in the desert. So 
Where do you think they get their food from? Well, here's what happens, right? In the, um, in the uh, springtime, um, the Israelites are planting in the Valley of Jisrael, and the Assyrians are sharpening their swords. And then when the crops are fully grown, the Assyrians come in, and they steal all the food, and they go back. Sounds like Gideon, doesn't it? Precisely the same thing is happening. In fact, um, here's a fascinating little uh, map for you. Um, you can see there that where the Valley of Jezreel is, is uh, perhaps the first place on earth where agriculture was kind of established. Right? So, so that's why it's so attractive to the, to the Assyrians. Now, you've got to get your head around what Israel is thinking. They're thinking something like, actually, this productivity, this blessing, it, it comes from God. No, it doesn't. No, no. It comes from Baal. Who are the most powerful gods? These Assyrians, they're pretty powerful. They must have impressive gods. Let's actually acknowledge their gods as the most powerful. Let's believe in their gods. And, and we get to encounter their gods because they come across and they rape and pillage and steal from us. But somehow, because they're powerful, we'll still worship their gods. How nuts is that logic? I'm struggling to make it sound compelling. But that's the kind of thing that they're thinking, right? God, um, it's not God who provides for us. It's, it's, it's the gods. It's Baal. It's the gods of the Assyrians. So what's God going to do? He's going to leave her in the desert. Bring her into what I would call a moment of disruption. And then he says this. Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. So God commits to being tender, to wooing her, a, a, a second romance in the place where the first took place. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Now, there's imagery and wordplay happening here that kind of uh, make even more rich what's going on. So the wordplay is this. You won't get it in English. The word for my master actually uses the same consonants as for Baal. Right? They sound similar words. So, um, the Assyrians are coming, and uh, Israel's talking about Baal and how powerful Baal is. Um, and now, there's no crops to steal. Israel's laid barren. 
made unattractive, and so the Assyrians don't bother coming, and, and Israel stops talking about the Assyrians and stops using the word Baal and actually falls in love again with God, but this time the word Baal, which sounds like the word master, is not being used as a deepening of intimacy and connection between God and his people. And now there's the equality, the, the closeness ex, is expressed in terms of now you are husband and not master. Right? That's the wordplay. And the imagery is not just this is uh, the desert experience, the betrothal played out again, and then we're going into the land flowing with milk and honey. It's even better than that. It's Garden of Eden-like. Right? And so we get this picture of the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky and the creatures that move along the ground. There's, there's echoes of what's going on in the Garden of Eden. That's how beautiful the restoration will be. And so uh, the, the cycle of chapter 1, even though Gomer or Israel heaps unfaithfulness upon unfaithfulness, insult to injury, God remains faithful and there's a second betrothal in the desert. I will betroth you to me forever. Betrothal, by the way, has these overtones of a dowry price, of, of a buying back. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. Um, so the bride price for buying Goma back is righteousness, justice, love, compassion, faithfulness. Isn't that just beautiful? Despite who Gomer is and what she's done, the tone, the character of the way that God buys her back is with righteousness, justice, love, compassion, and faithfulness. And then we read, and you will acknowledge the Lord. That word acknowledge probably could be better translated, know. And you will know the Lord, which has echoes of Genesis 4, verse 1, Adam knew Eve and conceived children. There's something deep and holistic and exclusive about that type of knowledge. And that will be the consequence of the second betrothal. A faithful God buys his unfaithful people yet again. It's about at this point in Israel's history where you must be asking yourself, did God just choose the wrong people? I mean, they were kind of, Deuteronomy 7 verse 7, they weren't any more special than anybody else. God chose them. But my goodness, they were like somebody who's been unfaithful and then loved. 
returns to unfaithfulness loved again, this cycle could kind of just go on forever, right? Like, wouldn't, wouldn't somebody else have realized what a good wicket they were on? Well, Paul deals with this in Romans 1. And now we're talking about every human culture, not just Old Testament Israel. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. It's reminiscent of the patterns we've just seen in Israel, where God generously provides, it's an ordered world in which humanity can flourish, and they do, except they don't thank God. In fact, they suppress, Paul says, the truth about God. And instead, they worship not the Creator, but creatures. And they attribute their prosperity and their well-being to idols. And what does God do? He gives hum humans over to their desires. And therefore we stand condemned. We have beget, brought judgment onto ourselves. And it's not just the Old Testament Jews who do this. It's not just the people Paul's writing about in the first century. I want to suggest to you that it's us in the 21st century. We do something remarkably similar. We live in a world that has all of the resources that God has generously provided. It's an ordered world in which we can, by um, the works of our hands, um, bring about um, crops and comforts and pleasures and what do we do with those things? Do we worship God? Do we thank God? No. In fact, we also worship creatures rather than creator. Not little gold and silver statues. There's a different creature that we worship. It's me. The reason I'm prosperous is because I worked hard. The reason I'm doing well is because I'm resourceful. It's because I'm capable. It's because I've got gifts and I've got passions and I've chased them and I've made this happen and I deserve this and I'm unique. And what does God do? God says, well, if you want to worship self, let me hand you over to that. 
And where does it leave us? With an insatiable appetite, chasing for more, and epidemics of loneliness, brokenness, anxiety, depression, self-harm, and so on. And what do we do in those moments when we find ourselves in the desert? We blame God. How come I'm here? This is so unfair. I have a right to be happy and to avoid suffering. And yet we beget the suffering on ourselves and God gives us those disruptions so that we might put things back in order. How do you fix up this mess if it's not Israel who's capable of living as God's people? In fact, if it's all cultures and us no different in the 21st century, how do you get this right? And the answer is, it wasn't one nation, but it was one person who was capable as living as God's child. Uh, we've been unfaithful, but Jesus lives the life that we were called to live. And in the process, Jesus invites the judgment that is rightly ours onto himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And so what are the consequences of unfaithfulness? It's that you stand under judgment, not loved, and not as a child. And Jesus brings the judgment upon himself. And, and the Father and the Son, who have been in perfect union for all eternity, gets to a point where Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you see that pattern just being played out again? Jesus experiencing all those consequences that were rightly ours of brokenness, of not loved, of a father and a son being separated. But through that faithfulness of Jesus, God is able to uh, remain both uh, just and righteous and deal with our brokenness and make it possible for us to be freed and to be bought and to be brought back into relationship with him. And Jesus buys us back. And what's the character of his life and his dowry price that he gives? I betroth you to me forever. I betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion, or we could translate that word grace. I betroth you in faithfulness. And how will we respond? By knowing Jesus as our Lord in all that that word means. So, a few applications about 
what all of this means for your and my relationship with God. And here's the first. Being unfaithful begets, invites problems. If Israel is the runaway spouse, then when we run away and chase other idols or forget about God and idolise ourselves, well, what do you think is going to happen? Things are going to fall apart. Secondly, idols steal and they leave us empty and naked. Let's, let's take ourselves back to the experience of Israel in the Jezreel Valley, right? They've got God-provided um, food and, and the nations come to steal, kill and destroy and Israel says, wow, you guys are powerful, let's worship your gods. And we're thinking to ourselves, how stupid does that sound? I wonder, would you or I ever be so stupid? What's the idol that you're most tempted by? You're wooed by its power, by its impressiveness. And yet, as you begin to worship that idol, you experience it taking and stealing and killing and destroying. And yet, at times, like Goma, you pant and yearn and you give more to that idol. Idols promise more and give less until eventually they take everything and give you nothing. Third, some of our experiences are actually of our own making. Some of the times we find ourselves in the desert, it's because we've given ourselves to our idols. Even as we feel it, sucking the life out of our soul. We return to its temple and we worship it. And so what's the solution? The solution is that when Jesus comes in justice and righteousness, love and compassion and faithfulness that we respond 
by knowing Jesus. I went to the uh, uh, youth ministry, uh, children's ministry training conference this week and uh, a a woman was speaking on um, emotions and she said, young people live in a world where there are big things to love and there's uh, lots of ways in which they're encouraged to yearn and to chase for big loves in their lives. She said the solution is not to dampen that down. The solution is actually to be even more in love with an even bigger God. And that's how you order your loves. So your idol. It's compelling, right? I get that. Do you love Jesus more? Maybe there are parts of the thing that you love that are actually good. Jesus wants you to experience that goodness. But inside the context of loving him as the greatest, that goodness is a blessing. Outside of that, it's an idol that steals and kills and breaks relationship. I'm going to pray for you. And I want you to be thinking about that idol that tempts you the most. God, as we read the story of a prostitute who is graciously loved and then wants to leave her faithful lover and family and go back chasing those who abuse, who steal from her. At one level, we don't get it, but at another level, when we're honest enough with ourselves, we realise that sometimes we're no different. That sometimes we invest our hopes, our dreams in idols. We want to ask this morning, Jesus, that we might have a bigger picture of your love, your compassion, the justice and the righteousness that you bring to our life, the faithfulness when things are going well and when things are tough. May we know you and in you find all the good things that you've always given to us. May we acknowledge that all good things come from you and may we live in the security and the blessing of that covenantal faithful love that only you offer. And may people see us living well as your children so that your name is glorified.